you are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Tonight in our study, we are in uh, Hebrews 6. Uh, of course, the overall theme of the book of Hebrews is all things are better and greater in Christ, and we have a a number of arguments that are advanced, the foundation for the things in which uh, we believe and have confidence in. And we find that we're in a section of exhortation. I truly think that, uh, as it will say in the 13th chapter, this is a word of exhortation, which is a way that sermons were described. I truly think we have the full text of a sermon here. So we have some points advanced, and we have some exhortations given the audience. The exhortation of which we're in the midst of in this section is about the priesthood of Christ. But the apostle, or the Hebrew writer at least, said that uh, it was hard to explain at the end of chapter 5 because they become dull of hearing. He said that they needed to not be immature, to move on to the uh, more uh, meaty things of the word, beyond the elementary things, and I'm given an exhortation about spiritual immaturity and that, how dangerous that could be. Well, if anything, now we step up the uh, rhetoric, we step up the concern, we step up the danger, we're into a new category of warning, one of the most serious warnings in the book of Hebrews. Uh, this one and the ending exhortation of uh, chapter 10 about uh, the fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. Uh, this is one of the two great danger exhortations. There's a number of dangers, but this is this is the most dangerous. This is the, the reddest of the red flag warnings. And so we have a serious warning of not just stalling out, which could lead to disaster, but a warning about those on whom disaster in their faith might fall. And so in chapter 6, now verse 4, for in the case of those who have been once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since they again crucified to themselves, the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is toiled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and the things that accompany salvation though we are speaking to you in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love that you've shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope unto the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so we see the kindness and gentleness uh, of the 
writer, even as he gives this most serious of exhortation, that we're convinced of better things concerning you. No, this is a possibility, a real possibility, not just a theoretical one. But also don't think just because we've given the most serious of warning, don't think that you're in the most serious and the most dreadful of places because there's reason for hope. There's reason for continuance if you'll live by faith. That's the whole key here. Are we going to live by faith or not? The just shall live by faith. This is, uh, in the book of Hebrews, one of the great books of faith. We have in chapter 11, the list of so many of the faithful and teaching us to live in this way. And those who, through faith and patience, he would say, inherit the promise. And so it's a serious warning, but it's a modified warning. And if we would only read the most serious and starkest of things and apply that too broadly, I think we would give people a false sense of danger. Uh, We would, uh, in many ways, uh, possibly uh, make them unsure, uh, uh, chip away at their assurance. I know for a fact that happens. I There's a, one of the uh, people that I listen to and have read some after. Now, he's a Calvinist. Uh, he has some very thoughtful things on many topics. Uh, but this, uh, I think he, the way he speaks about this passage, he must have been scarred by its use in his childhood. Uh, he was raised in a charismatic denomination uh, and very Arminian. Uh, but uh, he basically uh, summarizes the teaching of his youth is that uh, if you had a sin, uh, a single sin, if you had any, any any sin, you would be eternally lost. One sin and you're out is the way he summarized it. Now, he uh, he said in his youth he was terribly frightened by that. Uh, he, he left him in great uncertainty at all, all the time. And then he then extols uh, uh, the Calvinistic doctrine of assurance uh, that uh, uh, there's the perseverance of the saints is guaranteed. And, uh, and so now he says that's a much better uh, solution. Uh, well, I'm not sure entirely about that at 100%, but I know that what he was taught as a youth wasn't right, and it did scare him, obviously, as he constantly says. And at times I heard things like that uh, hinted to, maybe almost to the point of fully saying that, that you're just, you know, you're one slip up away, buddy. <laughs> you, you know, one and you're done. And I have to say, I, I, had, I haven't been in any human relationship yet. Uh, well, okay, maybe there was this one girl who really didn't want to continue dating me, and she said, you know, my one slip up, and hey, buddy, you're done. But I kind of think she wanted to get rid of me anyway. <laughs> but other than that, other than, other than failed youthful romance, is there any aspect of life of one slip up and you're done? You know, there might be some things of, of such... Uh, important public trust, and the violation of that trust was so grievous that one bad incident caused a person uh, to lose that, maybe lose a security clearance or something. But generally, it's not just one little incidental slip up in that, right? It's the guy. It's the guy that went to the uh, to the bar. He got drunk, and he ended up in in the arms of you know a secret agent from the other side. Right. And he says, Oh, just, I just messed up that one time. Well, yeah, but that, that was, that was a cascading things, a cascade of things that are terribly serious. And you just, you're kind of lumping in the whole, the whole shooting match into one. But seriously, in any relationship where people wish to be together, 
where people, uh, be it employment, uh, be it uh, family, uh, be it uh, uh, partnerships or cooperation in any civic organization or any kind of relationship you have, is there any place where it's a one and you're done? And if people would read these warnings or any other warnings of apostasy in that light, I think they're doing great injustice to the text. Because we are in a relationship that, well, if we want this relationship because of what God has done for us, what has, how much does he want us in this relationship? In my relationship to God, I'm pretty sure he always wants it as much and almost always more than I want it. What has God done so that I may have a relationship with him? He's working on a 4,000-year plan from before the foundation of the world that including his, included his son coming and dying for me and instructing me in the way of life, right? And what has he done since we've made a relationship with each other through his son? Well, he's forgiven me constantly, hasn't he? He's forgiven me every time I repent. And what's he promised to do through the entirety of my life? And on what basis or evidence, other than a misuse of this or a few other passages, would anybody ever come close to having a one-and-done view of their relationship with God? And so I know, again, that he wants this relationship more than I do. And he has proven that. And I think that situation shall persist, don't you? So we turn to the text. What we find, let me get the night's outline up there. We're going to divide this admonition into three parts. The fullness of blessings that he's that we've received. So in the tragedy of turning and walking away from what he's continually given us. The dangerous end of apostasy. Just because he dearly wants this relationship with us, don't think that it can't end. See, that's another mistake, to think that it can't end. To think that it easily would end is a terrible mistake and robs us of all assurance. To think of the idea that it cannot end, no matter what. That's another false idea and gives us all kinds of false confidence. And in many cases, occasions is erosive and corrosive uh, to our sanctification and our desires to walk pleasing to him in the instructions that he's given us. And then we'll close with the third section tonight, this encouragement to continue, which is very much what I just expressed, but in slightly different terms, the reasons why to think that God still wants these people to walk with him. So we start with the fullness of the blessings that these folks have received. So for in the case of those who've once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, verse four, and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and verse 5 continues with two more things, tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come. We've got a five-way description of the Christian life, which it sure appears that these people have fully participated in. For those who don't believe that apostasy is a possibility, uh, they really have to diminish what these all five of these things mean. Because by any natural use of the language, it is a five-fold description of the fullness of a relationship with God. You've been enlightened. Where, where were we before Christ? Universally in the dark. 
what do we find when we come to Christ? Well, he is the light of the world. And we've accepted that light. And he enlightens every man. So we have John 8, 12 and John 1, 9. While he was in the world and the world was made through him, the world didn't know him. See, they're in darkness. But we are in light. This light has come to the world. We didn't flee to the darkness that our deeds may be exposed or our deeds would not be exposed. We came to the light. It exposed our deeds, but we were happy for it because we repented of those deeds and he took us in. And so being enlightened, that's being in Christ. We've tasted the heavenly gift. Now, those who would diminish this say, well, see, they just they, they tasted it. They didn't really fully imbibe. No, that's not what the figure of speech taste means. To taste me here means to partake or to experience. We partake, we taste, we experience. And so if, if you, uh, uh, you know, uh, are at a place where somebody's serving something, right? We recently had a potluck. I made the brisket again. People seem to like that. But if somebody wasn't there and I gave them some brisket, I said, here, taste this. Did I mean for them to have a little nibble of that? Or what did I mean when I said taste that? And, and some sister who's, who's made such a lovely pie, uh, such a lovely cake or some other thing, and they say taste that, right? Do they mean just have a little nibble? Or are they meaning get this, uh, you, you, you're going to want it when you get it, right? Now, I do understand in English sometimes we do use taste. We do use taste in the sense of just a little nibble, just a little trial, trial run of it. Uh, honestly, the last potluck, you know, we know somebody brought the, uh, the, the venison hearts. Was it venison? No, was it pork heart or venison? I don't know. They brought the heart. Okay, I had some of that. I, I, had, a, I had a full piece. And I don't know that I'll do that again. I can say, hey, I tasted that, checked it off. It was all right. I, uh, <laughs> hey, I'd certainly eat it rather than starve. But uh, it's not candy to me like it was to some. So, yes, we do use taste in the sense of a limited partaking. But the general sense of taste means to experience. Uh, in Hebrews 2.9, You've already had this usage of this word in this way, in this letter. Because what did Christ do? That by the grace of God, he tasted death for every man. How much death did he have by tasting? Again, chapter 2, verse 9, he tasted death. Yeah, he had the full dish, didn't he? And so of the, heaven, of, of the heavenly gift, we get the full dish. Well, what's the heavenly gift? Some have said it's Christ himself. Some have said it's forgiveness of sins. Uh, some have taken it because there's an eating metaphor. They automatically go to the Lord's Supper because if there's anything about eating, it's the Lord's Supper, right? Um, I'm not sure about that. I think it might be eternal life because that is the greatest and ultimate gift that comes from heaven. It might be communion with Christ himself. And so we do have in the scriptures, uh, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit for the baptized in Acts 2.38. We have the bread that comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world uh, in John 6, 33. We have the promise that he made to us eternal life. So I would, what exactly is the heavenly gift? I'm either going to go with the experience and fellowship of Christ himself or it's eternal life. These people have had that. And they've been partakers. So there's a big equivalent uh, word, but a different word, but equivalent in the effect. They've been, partake, they've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. So these people have had fellowship with the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts. Galatians 4, 6, there by which we cry, Abba, Father. In Romans 8, the Spirit of God dwells in us. 
That's how we can tell the difference between those who are in the flesh and those who are in Christ, that the Holy Spirit dwell in you. So the third description here is these folks have a fellowship with the Spirit. And now we have tasting again in verse 5. What have we tasted here? We've experienced and we have known the good word of God. We've really had it. You know, you think about those uh, Jews who searched the scriptures thinking in it they might have life, but what the scriptures actually point to, they pointed to Christ. I don't think that they actually tasted it. They didn't, get, they didn't realize what it was. Uh, they had pieces and parts, but they, they missed the point. But uh, the word of God is to us, uh, what the psalmist say, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb, when we really partake of it, right? When we really taste what it is. And the other thing we've tasted, in finally in verse 5, is the power of the age to come. That one probably to me is the most mysterious of these. Uh, it might be uh, literally talking about power that was demonstrated among them. If these are Hebrew Christians in and around Jerusalem, these people would have experienced and seen the most miracles of any Christians in human history. So that might be the power. It might be the, 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 uh, of the age to come is the age of Christ and the rule of Christ and the rule of heaven. Uh, it might be that they have, uh, through, the, uh, you know, through the eye of faith, seen and experienced these things uh, under the tutelage of inspired teachers, of which they would have had many, and the like. So the age to come is the age in which uh, you know, righteousness will dwell and Christ will fully reign. These people have experienced its power. So I believe that these people are really Christians who are really being warned about apostasy. And I think to think otherwise ends up doing damage to the text. Now, I don't want to make this a whole thing on Calvinist and Reformed doctrine, uh, but there is one thing that uh, anytime uh, someone who appeared to be uh, a, a saint appeared to be faithful in Christ for some time and then uh, became an apostate and then obviously uh, fell away. Uh, there's only really two things that generally are said by reformed folks about that. Either, you know, it looks like they've fallen now, but if they were, if they're uh, of truly of the faith, they'll repent before the end comes. Well, some of them obviously never do. Uh, or they say, well, he was never really with us. And there is a passage that says that exact thing. It's in 1 John 2, verse 19. And this is, this is the framework by which they view all people who apparently were with us and then fell away. They went out from us, John said, because they were not really of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it might be shown that they were not of us. You know what? That's true, of course. And anytime we see a scripture and read a scripture like what John said, we have to say what? That's a true scripture. But I don't think that's a universal scripture of everybody who's ever fallen. That's a description of some who have fallen. And particularly in 1 John with these Gnostics, uh, the Gnostics pulled away, I think, a lot of uh, immature and arrogant people from the church. And immature and arrogant, uh, a lot of them never really have joined this, right? And so John is describing this group of people uh, some of whom are basically just imposters. And that's the kind of people that heresy pulled away. 
I think this heresy that the Hebrew people are facing is a different kind of heresy working on a different kind of Christian. Not working on the young and immature, but working on those who get ground down over decades of being surrounded by Judaism while affirming their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And so there are a number of ways that people fall away. And John certainly describes one, and he describes a common one. But he doesn't describe the only kind of falling away. You think about the parable of the sower. In the parable of the sower, there were three ways to fall away, but only one way to remain true. From Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew, Matthew 13. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, uh, what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. Well, there's people who never really joined us, right? The seed never took root. But then there's others. Then there's the one, the seed upon whom the seed was sown in the rocky place. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but it's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, he immediately falls away. Well, here's another one. He, he's got more to him than the first guy, but he still doesn't have a lot. Well, John might, John's description might cover that guy too. Uh, but there's two different kinds of falling away in the parable of the sower. And now we get though to the third kind of falling away in the parable of the sower. The one I think that is much more like the situation of the Hebrews. And the one on whom the seed was sown, or pardon me. Yeah, the one on whom, whom the seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word. And the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. And it becomes unfruitful. So it becomes unfruitful. What was it for a bit? Well, it was fruitful. Well, why did it become unfruitful? Because of all these things around it. Well, what's happened to some of these Hebrews? They become unfruitful. They have left the faith, some of them. And the apostles, or Hebrew writer, is warning them in serious terms that this might happen. And then he talks about the one in whom the, the seed was the good soil. That man heard the word, he understood it, he bore fruit, and uh, maybe a hundredfold or sixtyfold or thirtyfold. So there is three in the parable of the sower, three different kinds of unfaithfulness, but only one kind of faithfulness. And so, no, I don't think John describes in 1 John 2, 19, I don't think he describes when he said they were never with us. He describes everybody who ever fell. He Again, he describes them that's prominent there. But that, even from the teaching of Jesus, is not the only way. So we can't always make everything fit in one place or in one way. There are many ways in which the Scriptures describe things. And we can't go with one description in one place, especially when other places describe a different thing, even though it ends in the same result, but they got there differently. So that's the first. These folks have fully received the blessing. Now, the dangerous end of apostasy. What if you give that up? You've got it all. You've got all the gospel can provide. You've had, uh, you've been in the uh, good word of God. You've uh, had the, uh, this partaking of the Holy Spirit. You've been enlightened. You've been given the heavenly gift. You've got all the blessings, but then you decide, nah. Then you decide, this is too costly. This Judaism that I was raised in and my neighbors still practice, 
What if I just did that instead? And so here it is. If you then have fallen away. And again, the very language. How can you fall from a place you've never been? I guarantee you I'm in no danger of falling off the Empire State Building. Never have been. I doubt I ever will be. Because what's one thing I'll never be on top of? I'll probably never be on top of the Empire State Building. Now, I might fall off this sidewalk out here in front of the building all the time, right? Because that's something I'm on. But I can only fall from something I've got on, which, as you all know me, I try not to climb too much, right? (laughs) And so you can only fall from where you're at. Well, these have fallen away. So they must have been at the place to fall away from it. And then have fallen away. And, well, what's the warnings? Let him who thinks he stand take heed, lest he fall. To others who are going back into Judaism, in the book of Galatians, you're severed from Christ. Well, they had to be joined to be severed. You're severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Peter talks about those, uh, the false teachers of 2 Peter 2. Uh, Those who introduce destructive heresies, they are false teachers. They deny the master that bought them. Well, they've been bought by the master. They, they were, they should be the master's men. But they've turned on their master. And so they had to be in the master in some way to deny the master who bought them. And then there's those in Second Peter 2 who had escaped the defilements of the world. But then they go back into sin, and it's like the dog returning to the vomit and the sow returning to the mire. Well, you got to have left that to go back to it which, of course, makes it all the more disgusting. So we've got people who have fallen away. It says it's impossible to renew them to repentance. After having received so much and knowing all that can be offered in the fellowship of Christ, in the communion of the saints, in all the blessings of God, and then you say, no thanks. How would you get somebody to repent? For somebody who didn't realize what they were walking away from, For somebody who fell into sin by deception, uh, by the temptations of the devil, by the weaknesses uh, that was within them that Satan terribly exploited, those people you can appeal to their conscience. You can explain to them the dangers they're in. You can explain to them uh, what what they're giving up and, and what remains for them and what blessings can abound if they'll repent and return. But these people already know that and they left anyway. What else are you going to say? What will you do to renew them to repentance? You're not going to do anything. Now, does that mean I don't think they could ever be saved in this state? Well, no. And, and I cite you Jesus' own story of the prodigal son. Right? He sort of open-eyed walked away. But what happened when he finally came to a realization and change of heart? He changed. But what if somebody from the community had gone to him in his loose living in the time of his wantonness and said, boy, you're messing up. You should go home. What would the boy say in that? And in that state of mind, in that condition of heart, he'd scoff, he'd laugh, he'd turn him aside. Now, when he came to himself, he might remember, oh yeah, I was told that. But until there's a coming to yourself moment, when I think here of this renew again, renew them, I think of some outside influence or outside force. 
and just how ineffective it will be. You're going to be beyond the reach of the brethren. You're going to be beyond the reach of anything other than a change of heart, which will come when you humble yourself. And so these folks, having known all these things, they crucified to themselves the Son of God. They put him to an open shame. And so there isn't a lot of hope for those folks. And so don't think you're going to dip into apostasy. You're going to dip into that sinful world. You're going to dip into the life that's contrary to sanctification, and you know it. And you're just going to go live that way for a while. And then when you're good and ready, you'll come back out. There are people who have fallen to this, stayed there for many years, and by some seemingly miraculous grace of God, their heart was changed. But the Hebrew writer saying, don't count on it. Because, like Hebrews 10.26 will say later, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. That's the other really harsh warning in the book of Hebrews. And the fury of fire that will consume the adversary. So th- this is not the, uh, uh, the slip up. Uh, this is not a minor fault. This is not some kind of foible or failing. This is saying, I don't need that anymore. I'm going to live without that anymore. And how dangerous is that? Well, verse 7, a little parable. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful for those for whose sake it's tilled, receives a blessing from God. And so you grow your garden. You grow the crops in your field. You're, it's a blessing of God. And that, um, that land will be blessed. That land will, will be more prosperous. But if it yields thorns and thistles, so the opposite, the, the dangerous, uh, the destructive, the hurtful, it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. If you've if you got a piece of land that's constantly growing briars and brambles or from the front yards I grew up with in central Oklahoma, stickers and goat heads. What do you do to get rid of them? Well, as long as the homeowners association allows, and in the seventies when I grew up in Oklahoma, there weren't no such thing. You burn it. And so I remember a number of times where some of our neighbors would burn their yards. Why? Because they wanted to get rid of the stuff that was growing there and start over. These Christians who have become thorns and thistles. They become the stickers and goat heads of life. And no, I'm not talking about my brother-in-law, either one of them. But do you know these people that are stickers in the barefoot walk of life? What do you do? You weed and you, 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 you uh, put out the, the, the poison. And eventually you, you bring out the fire because these things have to go. And so it is from the perspective of God, of some of these. And Jesus said the same thing. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Where's the branch? It's in Jesus already. The branch is in Jesus. This is not a warning to the vines that are not in Jesus, but the, the, the branches that are connected to the true vine. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. I'm not a real fan of pruning day. I don't like that. Some of that stuff he prunes off, I liked. I was comfortable with that sin. I was comfortable with those uh, conceits. 
I, I like some of those habits of mine. But he said, no, you need to get rid of them. And he taught me through the word and through the brethren. And he taught me through providence. He taught me in many ways. Get rid of these things. He prunes us. Why? So we can bear more fruit. He gets rid of the fruitless, even in the branches that he keeps. But what if you're a branch that bears no fruit? Off you go. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine and you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Again, being pruned as we go, so we'll do more. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone, though, does not abide in me, so you don't stick with the vine, he's thrown away as a branch, and he dries up, and they gather them and cast them in the fire to be burned. Jesus taught the same lesson in a different figure. Paul uses, or should we Paul? I, I think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. The Hebrew writer uses the figure of the garden plot or of the, of the field near the house. Jesus uses the figure of the vine in the vineyard, but both teach the same thing. The blessings of fruitfulness, the care and, and, and uh, provision of those who are faithful and fruitful, but the separation and burning of those who are not. That's, that's, that's a serious warning. But again, this is about walking in Christ in his way. This is not about minor foibles and faults and failures of those who are trying to walk in him. This is, this is not the admonition for them. This is for the admonition of the one who is fruitless and turning against his master, right? And so what does the Hebrew writer say to his audience? And this is where we, when you're going to give that strict a warning in the full context of the gospel, there needs to be some salve with it, right? Here comes the salve. Here comes the comfort. Here comes the assurance for those who are trying. But beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you and the things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this way. We've just laid out the worst-case scenario. But just because we laid out the worst-case scenario, that doesn't mean we think you're going to do it. That doesn't mean that we think that's where you are. Think about any training class, especially if it's a, think about a, a training class for some kind of first responder, whether for firemen or policemen or whatever. Isn't there going to be training days where you get to watch, if you're training to be a fireman, you get to watch firemen make mistakes and burn to death? Isn't there days where they get that kind of training of how these things will kill you, and if you don't pay attention, you will die, right? And why do they give them those kind of warnings? Because they think these guys are fixing to all rush out there and get themselves killed on the job? No, but because what? If they're careless, if they're arrogant, they might, Right? And so they have to have the strict things. But that doesn't mean we think you're it. And so all of the things that, that legal and HR makes the, you take in company training where it goes through the worst, you know, uh, the, the worst behaviors of the most, uh, you know, callous employees. Uh, and they give you those warnings because they think everybody in the, in the, of the new hires, uh, this new wave of hires is going to do all that? 
No, but they want you to know somebody has done it. And they want you not to follow on that path, right? So, brethren, yeah, this is the worst case. But this is not what we think of you. Beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you and the things that accompany salvation, even though we speak in this way. For, and here's the God is on your side section, for God is not unjust to forget your work and the love that you've shown toward him. Is he fixing to bring out the uh, the hoe to uh, clear the ground and burn all the remnants just because you haven't done exactly what you're supposed to right now because you've been a bit immature? No, he's not doing that. He's not cutting you off as a vine because you weren't as fruitful as you could have been, right? But you're, you're still connected. You're still staying. He's going to prune you, and that's no fun, but he's not cutting you off yet. So God is not unjust to forget your work, and the love you showed to his name, and having ministered and still ministered to the saints. So notice what Paul puts as kind of a premier test of how much you people have loved God. You've loved the brethren. God loves you people. He's telling you that. He's saying God loves you, right? We know that from our salvation. God so loved the world, he gave Jesus. If God loved us when we were sinners, how much does he love us when we're in Christ? Right? The one who had Christ die for us, and he put us in relationship in Christ, that he's brought this relationship uh, of his people to each other, not by accident, and not to put us in precarious circumstance, but pursuing us through the death of his son to bring us, how good a care is he going to take when we're here? So what if you are trying? Now, what if you're not doing very good at your trying? Well, take hope. God knows that you have worked, and God knows that you have loved him. God knows that you have done good. He still wants you here, doesn't he? What's the, who's this warning to? Those who put Christ to an open shame. Those who walk away from the faith. Those who come to despise his son. Those who act like the people that killed him. So no, this is not your weak Christian. This is your walking away apostate. And so if you want to stay here and you want to, you want to uh, give a go of faithfulness, is God going to give you another chance at a go of faithfulness? He's not going to forget what you've done, that you've been doing these things for his people. And again, what was the ultimate test of showing real love and concern? You take care of his people. What was Jesus's complaint to Paul as he was a persecutor? You're persecuting me. Because what was he doing? He was hurting God's people. So here, I've got a relationship with my people. Keep it. And so we desire, this is the writer now, the preacher speaking, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the end. God wants you to stay here. We want you to stay here. We want you to be faithful. God is going to receive you walking in Christ in a faithful way. Come on back. This is what, again, think, if we're the children of God and we start down this path and we have a strained relationship with our Father, if we're, if, we get, if we're starting to be wayward children, how much does God want us as his children to come back to him? All right? Now, as much in this family relationship as the parents want the children to be with them, it is some mighty poor parents 
and it's happened, I've seen it, who disown their children for anything short of atrocious behavior, right? And really unfaithfulness and, and uh, exploitation uh, of other family members. What is, it the, what is the kind of thing that gets you disowned in a family? I think that's what we should think of when we think about those who leave God's family. Will God easily disown his children? No. But don't test the limits because will God disown some of these? Yeah. Just as you as a parent would, right? For some of us, it's unthinkable we'd ever have to disown our children. But can't we think at least as an academic exercise of when we might have to? That some of us has been more than just academic, right? And so it is with our Heavenly Father. So we want you, we desire for you to be diligent, to have, verse 11, the full assurance of hope to the end, and that you not be sluggish. See, this, this was where the danger of spiritual maturity in that lesson came first. Sluggishness leads to this kind of apostasy, right? This kind of apostasy is not gained in a day. This kind of apostasy takes some time for the rot to set in. So don't be lazy. Don't be dull. Study here and imitate those who faith and patience inherit the promise. We're going to have a whole lesson. Well, we're going to have probably more than one. Hebrews 11, what'd they do? They had faith and they had patience. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this theme. But what we need to realize in this lesson is the possibility of apostasy real? Yes. Do we think that that's where everybody is? And is God just going around with his apostate detector looking to cut people off? No. He's trying to keep you in the family. He's trying to work with you in the family. But if you persist in apostasy, the worst might happen. And so we're going to tell you the worst case scenario, even again, as he says, we're convinced of better things concerning you. And for anybody who comes back in faith, and that, that is the whole key, right? The just shall live by faith. That's Habakkuk, quoted three times in the New Testament. The, you know, over in chapter 11, that we believe in him and we uh, diligently seek him as a rewarder of those who do so. That's what we want you to do. That's what we want everybody. So live by faith. And this warning doesn't have to scare you. Uh, walk toward apostasy and corruption. This warning should scare you. But like that uh, fellow we mentioned in the beginning uh, of of the lesson, uh, who was raised in a kind of a situation where these verses were used to install and instill a spirit of fear so that he took the lesson from it, you know, kind of one and one sin and you're out. Uh, that's that's misusing the text. That's abusing the text and possibly abusing the youth, right? But they do need to know it's, it's possible to fall to that, but it's not a thing of a day. It's not of a thing of, of a, you know, an action that deceives you. From uh, Now, Satan would use any of them to eventually do that, wouldn't he? So take care. But also be of good courage and be of good faith. And these worst case scenarios 
Well, you won't come near them. Just like, again, last comparison, all those things in the HR handbook at the place you work. If you halfway take care of yourself and your conduct at work, what are the chances of that HR handbook and all those things in it that make it so thick, what are the chances of those being used against you? Not too, not too much, are they? Not too much. But what if you're careless? And what if you're neglectful? Uh, what if you are selfish? Then all those things will come much more readily into play. The same with these warnings. The same with these warnings. With that, then we'll close. We think about this really harsh message, but with the salve of inspiration to accompany it so that we may be properly warned, but also at the same time, properly assured. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Malvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.